Hello and welcome to The Lightest Tread, the official podcast of Soul, Recork and CO2 Negative, where we speak to extraordinary and ordinary people who do ordinary and extraordinary things that are good for their bodies, good for the planet and typify the soul of adventure. I'm your host, Paul Morn Brown, and today I'm in conversation with Soul Ambassador and professional mountain guide, Jediah Porter. Jed spends his life moving between ski boots, mountaineering boots and rock climbing shoes, and for the last 25 years... Jed's life has been guided by a passion for the steep. In our conversation, we chat all things mountains, why mountains make people better, and what it's like to live life as a professional mountain guide. If you enjoy this conversation, please do subscribe on YouTube and look out for our podcast arriving on your favorite podcast platform. Enjoy. All right. Hey, Jed, thanks very much for joining us thanks for thanks for having me paul yeah sure it's it's great to meet you at last it's funny i i spend a lot of time interacting with people in in a soul capacity and very seldom get the opportunity to sit down and chat face to face or the closest closest version of face to face that we have these days right yeah this is this is this is our life now lots of emails and texts and yeah for sure then a little bit of this and even less of the other stuff. So I, I really liked how we actually got in contact with you to begin with was, you know, we'll very often have people approach us um, to say, do you have an ambassador program or, uh, you know, can I represent the brand in one capacity or another? And sometimes we'll reach out to other people, um, sort of stalk them on social media. And the way it happened with you was, I thought it was really nice and kind of organic is in that I, was sitting scrolling as as we do, as is sort of part of my job, uh, and came across a reel that you had posted um, of just an awesome powder day somewhere. I couldn't tell you exactly where it was, and I just commented uh, that I'd enjoyed it to some extent. And um, you said, "Oh yeah, I've actually I actually wear your your products in my footwear uh, wherever I, wherever I go." And I thought that was an awesome way for for the relationship to kick off. Um. So Jed, tell us a little bit about uh, where you are and what you do, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm in uh, Driggs, Idaho, which is just a few miles from the Wyoming border on the western side of the Teton Range, the the affordable side of the Teton Range. So the the, the Teton Mountains are are. Uh, the, the principal draw here. I work as a mountain guide for the bulk of my income, and that's backcountry skiing in the winter, uh, some winter mountaineering, spring expeditions, skiing and climbing, and then summertime rock climbing and alpine mountaineering type climbing here in the Tetons uh, with, with autumn travels alternating between ski stuff in the southern hemisphere some years and rock climbing in the north american desert other years so all things all things mountains Uh, all things mountains that don't involve don't involve water you know you can't breathe underwater (laughs) so try and steer clear of that yeah well you can't breathe if you go too high up the mountains either but fair enough fair enough yeah (laughs) so do you spend much time in the death zone in the fabled death zone no, no, no. I, I, I'm, 
I've never been much about 6,000 meters. I've never been to Asia at all. Cool. My, my bulk of my mountain time has been in the, the Americas. And what is it about the, the Tetons? I mean, do you, do you have a special connection to the Tetons in, in particular? Do you, do you choose them for, for, you know, is there a particular reason that you're there as opposed to anywhere else? That's a fair question. Uh, in my view and in my experience, the, the Teton region, the Tetons, is the best skiing in the United States. Certain times a year, you go out, go to other places that are better. But as a place to live and be and exist and ski a lot in all different kinds of settings, uh, lift served and backcountry, uh, powder snow, good terrain, access, um, a variety of access methodologies, you know, from tons of exclusively human-powered skiing, which is my thing, to more, you know, there's a couple great resorts and snowmobile skiing and snowcat skiing, helicopter skiing. All, all, when you put all the different types of skiing together, the, the Tetons are the best in the country, in my view. So that's why I'm here, awesome. to ski. Great. And so the skiing really is, um, you know, you do the mountaineering and the climbing. And I find often people will have, uh, they'll live in a place specifically for a summer activity and then find a filler for the winter. Uh, but it sounds like you are really a skier for, first and foremost. That's your, your your first passion. And mountaineering is a filler or, or not? Well, I, I came to skiing via mountaineering for the most part. I, I would ski okay. occasionally, but the ski passion was born of of mountaineering desires and, and mountaineering type goals. So I, I wouldn't say I'm primarily a skier. I, I like skiing better than I like climbing, but, but only by a little bit. All right. Fair enough. So as we said, it all, it all comes down to the mountains and, and uh, something that I saw on, on your website, which really resonated with me, um, was the idea that mountains make people better sort of a power statement that you have up on your site. And, <laughs> and I, uh, I totally agree, uh, you know, but I, I couldn't tell you exactly why. And I wonder if you had a, a sort of explanation for that thought. <laughs> it occurs to me that, that, that maybe yeah. I hope no one thought too much more about it and just stop there. Like you, said, <laughs> you agree and that's good enough. Because uh, it, it, it doesn't hold up to a whole ton of scrutiny. I mean, there's lots of things that make people better you know i tend to think that that uh following a passion makes people better i tend to think that physical challenge makes people better exposure to risk and mitigation of that risk and facing the realities of, of risky environments makes people better i tend to think that that uh wild places make people better just just the existence of them, much less appreciating landscapes and circumstances and situations that that aren't human made by definition. That's that's wilderness, you know. Uh, and all those things come together in the mountains. Uh, sure. So, so I don't, but you can get that too in in the ocean or in a in a jungle or or whatever. Uh, so is is it about a sense of perspective is it a is it about a sense of yourself is it about a sense of uh you know the way we the way that experiencing those environments uh influences the way we 
live our lives? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's potentially all that. Everybody's going to get something different out of it. You know, uh, the, the, the perspective is a big one. I think wilderness is, is inherently like a perspective tool, you know, to much of our lives are, are human centric and that's, that's awesome. But to go into a wild place where humans are, have, have minimal to no impact, uh, just points out our, our position in the, in the hierarchy, if you will. Uh, and then there's, I think there's a lot to be gained by um, just learning new things. Any new hmm. thing that anyone learns is, is going to expand their being. And, you know, new sports are obvious in the, in the mountains um, and new places to go. Uh are obvious um but there are also new you know new circumstances new new way of interacting socially with with your small little group makes a huge difference for people um yeah yeah i often think that we live in a you know as you said we live a sort of uniquely or, or overwhelmingly human existence and we i think that i think it's very useful and and healthy to feel small sometimes to feel a sense of a sense of your place and there's little as you said in the ocean um i guess humbling maybe is the is the word i would i would use it's it's very easy to be humbled by the ocean uh and likewise on a mountain on a mountain top and some for me personally sometimes my favorite times on the top of a mountain or when it's howling wind and you can't see further than a few meters in front of you and um, I've personally only really ex experienced that in bounds in a, in a ski resort. So it comes with a, a sense of safety. Uh, I know that I'm going to be okay, uh, unless I do something really stupid. Um, but I love the sense of, you know, my friends get it all the time. The wind will be howling and I'll be looking around going like, oh yeah, we're now we're on the top of a mountain. Now, now it's, now it feels real. Yeah. And that that speaks to sort of the the the, the risk exposure side of it. I, I think that uh, it's healthy for us to be exposed to things where our, our immediate actions immediately matter, hmm. and and that's that's something we can access in the mountains. We can access that also in different circumstances, but we're also pretty darn good anymore at at uh sheltering ourselves from from those circumstances where our mm. immediate actions matter and it's the immediacy which is also important we spend so much time stressing about what's happening a week from now or a couple of months from now or you know a couple of years from now um but to be in that situation where exactly what you do now influences your safety or or uh, the success of your day or even just how much of a good time you're having and being in the mountains puts you in a place where you where you can focus on nothing else not even in a high risk situation necessarily but when you're snowboarding down a piece or skiing down a piece there's 
you're not thinking about anything else. You, you're just focused on on what's in front of you and and your next turn and the next the next moments um, that you're going to experience. So um, I also saw there you you one of the things you say is we go to the mountains together and you do more than you thought you were capable of speaking to somebody who you are guiding. Um, and you assert that with quite a lot of confidence. And I'm, I'm wondering if that is the case more often than not. Uh, I'm wondering, do you, how often you uh, struggle with people who, who achieve less than they might think that they're capable of? Or, yeah, what's that dynamic really like? The, uh, the, one of my very first guiding mentors described the entirety of the guiding profession as, as realigning expectations and then exceed the new expectations. So it is, mm. it's two-pronged, right? Uh, people come in with the one idea of what it's going to be like and what they're going to do. And, and that's not always perfectly accurate. Uh, so that's the realignment of expectations. The, the exceeding those new expectations is, is usually a matter of greater physical toughness, physical strength uh, than, they, than they thought possible, or greater patience, or a greater tolerance for, for discomfort or what have you. Uh, usually regardless of what's going on, with whether we got to the top or not or, or what have you, you know, the exceeding of the expectations is, is usually some sort of personal capability that they didn't know they had. Hmm. And, and that's a common, uh, I, I guess it seems to infer that it's often tougher than, than people expect or, or that, you often encounter situations that require more of people than than they are not than that they're prepared to give, but than than they they expect to have to give. Totally, almost all the time. Hmm. And they might know, you know, you might, like a, a normal day of of backcountry ski guiding is six to eight hours of action, hmm. and people know that like that's what they're paying for. Uh, Intellectually, they know that. In an academic sense, they know that. But regularly, people have never been physically active for six to eight hours in a row. Hmm. You know, a, a really active person exercises one to two hours a day. Yeah. You know, and to then go six to eight hours. It almost doesn't matter what you're doing. To just do that, to be on your feet, on the go for that long. And that's a super basic example of someone coming to a, a, a backcountry ski day for their very first time ever, or a, a basic mountaineering day where they're just on their feet for that long. And then we can go from, we can go from there too. You know, people have done all kinds of things they didn't know they could do above and beyond that. So speaking of which, you know, describe the range of trips that you that you might take people on from from the the most basic to the most extreme yeah seasonally depends the uh midsummer routine teton guiding i do uh probably is the most basic it has the most basic elements uh, the most basic day i might do is you know 
a kids group or a family that includes kids from age six and up. And we go rock climbing on a, on a single small cliff or a small boulder even um, for the entirety of the day. Uh, that's on the basic end. The ski equivalent would be uh, avalanche safety courses or just an introductory uh, backcountry or side country uh, day where they're learning the equipment and such. And then the, the, the other extreme, I mean, I've guided uh, routes in Alaska that, that, are, that are done, you know, two or three times a season on site guided the, the West Ridge of Mount Hunter or the ham and eggs couloir on, on the Moose's Tooth, uh, guided in Patagonia climbing objectives. And then I've guided routes on skis and on foot that have never been done before or never been done in a guided setting. Uh, yeah. So the whole spectrum from super basic to where I'm at my limit in the, in the, and the client is a longtime partner. We have this great rapport and, and I'm the, the hired partner, the reliable position on the calendar, you know, that's what they're, that's what they're buying and is, yeah. a, is just a reliable partner. There are two things I'd like to talk about. One is the sense of the rapport between you and, and, uh, a client, if you will, or or a companion, um, uh, and the other is, uh, and what I'd maybe like to start with is, what is it about first ascents that turns people on so much, or it could be first descents? What 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 is it about being the first person to do something like that, um, to do something that's, in most cases these days, probably not been done because other people look at it and go. The heck no, that, that's too hectic for me. Uh, there's there's a pride element, you know. We like being yeah. special, and sure. it's it, by definition you're special if you're the only person that's done it. The first person that done it means you're the only. To be the first person that's done something means you're the only person that's done it mm. uh, for at least a little while. Yeah. So we like feeling special. I think that's yeah. a huge part of it. Um, sure. There's similar somewhat related maybe more generous way of saying the same thing is that it's a it's a pursuit of expertise hmm. uh and that's what resonates with me at least is that like i do something that's never been done before and it, i'm the i'm the expert on that thing for at least a little while and that pursuit of expertise it, it is uh is is motivating and you know when i was younger i thought maybe that would be and i felt that i felt that drive and i thought maybe it'd be in an academic setting right like a like a phd level study of something mm. Mm. uh it is is a expertise that's a mode mo part of the motivation for high level academic study is the desire to be the expert in that niche. And I think mm. there's, I think there's something related there. And, you know, I think there's something there. Yeah. Uh, 
and then there's also the, the, the cliched adventure thing. And I, for some reason, the, the, the pursuit of adventure and the, that, that, that language that doesn't super resonate with me. Mm. Uh, personally, I know it does with a vault with a, with a huge array of the outdoor community and outdoor profession. Mm. Uh, the uncertainty, you know, adventure implies uncertainty, un, unclear outcome. Uh, and there's, there's something there. I, I, I like trying something and not knowing exactly what it's going to require to complete or require to back out of, you know, I think that's the adventure element, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around that or articulating it or, or internalizing Mm. the adventure part of things. It seems like uh, a, a lot of what you do has, has involves, um, uh, a lot of that element of what am I going to, what's going to be in store for me? Uh, what's not going to be in store for me and the almost a balance between preparation beforehand and decision-making in the field. Um, so I'm interested in how much of your, your job is pouring over, you know, I sort of joke to people that I have a problematic addiction to the snow forecast. Uh, right. It's not, it's not really a joke. I, I check the snow forecast far, far more often than I should. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but for me, that's just because I want to get the best snow possible for, for you. It's probably a far more serious set of factors. You, you're responsible for people's safety. Um, you're responsible for planning trips that, that go ahead. Well, you know, how much planning does it take and, and how much, uh, is really sort of grind work like that in comparison to the more glamorous side of it that, that people would imagine it, exactly as you say, as adventure. I, I spend a lot of time organizing prior to any trip. Hmm. Uh, and by a lot of time, we're talking hours, not necessarily days but it depends like an example today today i skied uh right here close to home teton pass uh it was it was for fun it's not it's there's always there's always work you know um i test gear i I film educational content for a for a business partner um but it was not it was not guiding and it, we just chatted along the way it was basically a, a recreational ski day um and we were out for like four hours i think uh really good skiing for april kind of unheard of yeah and the the the, the baseline routine that i'll do for a day like that is i spent about 15 minutes last night uh texting with the buddy about the rough plan and then I spent about six minutes this morning reviewing the uh, overnight weather history and the today's weather forecast with a few other prompts about how does that match with the plan that we made last night, so on and so forth. Uh, so what's that add up to 20, 25 minutes for four hours? 
Um, and that's fairly a fairly typical ratio for stuff here close to home or places I've been before or places I have a high level of familiarity. If it's somewhere else, you know, I had a I, last autumn, September of 21, I guided a, a, a first ascent over in California and I first scouted it in like 2011, first tried it in 2012. And then in 2017, I looked at it again. In 2020, we tried to go. All of each of these episodes involve multiple map exchanges and, and satellite imageries and new higher resolution satellite imagery and discussions with colleagues and such. Uh, so a, a process that spanned a decade and ended up in a, a six-day execution. A decade well spent? When you when you get to the end of day six, you think, oh, yeah, 10 years of my life, worth it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I did a, a sure. thing or two otherwise. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> And that wouldn't have gone as gone as well if it hadn't been for for the extensive preparation. Sure, sure. So it's it's yeah. a process of of uh, of it's almost like you said in terms of expertise. It's a process of generating familiarity either by uh, regular exposure or by carefully, methodically looking at something until you you feel almost familiar with even if it's not your backyard uh as it is in the case of a four-hour ski trip this morning it's something that you feel familiar enough with in your mind because you've looked at it in this many yeah. different ways over the this, this amount of time yeah and there's always going to be some level of uncertainty sure and therefore, there's going to be that adventure. In my view, the the, the preparation uh, allows me to just go further and steeper and cooler mm. before it gets adventurous. You know, there's mm. there's a, there's a general underlying sentiment in certain communities and circles that that too much preparation takes the takes the fun out of it, takes the adventure out of it. Uh, I mean, if, if you're going to the same mountain over and over and over again, like the way to make it uncertain is to just obscure the the weather forecast from yourself, say, or whatever, you know. Mm. But if you want to go further and rowdier and more unknown, untrammeled, you need to lay the groundwork in order to get to where the adventure starts. For sure. Uh, not not necessarily geographically, but sometimes it's just as simple as geography. Yeah. So speaking of groundwork, uh, I'm interested. You know, growing up as a kid in South Africa, if you ask someone who was surfing regularly, "Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up?" You would say a professional surfer, or someone who played rugby would say, "I want to be a professional rugby player." And I would assume that skiers. Yeah, would say, oh, I want to ski in the Olympics or whatever it might be. I don't know how many would think of ski guiding as as a 
as a way to live in the mountains and ski in the mountains. Um, you know, you said you say yourself on on your website that uh, that you spent your twenties trying to trying to get it out of your system, and then in your thirties you realized that it actually was your system. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm I'm interested in in how does a person go about what you do? How how do you go about becoming qualified, gaining the experience, uh, and getting yourself into a position to be, to be able to do this to to getting to that level of expertise and familiarity to to feel confidence in in taking taking other people's lives in in your hands essentially yeah uh someone's got to plant the seed right and i grew up my, my parents are outdoorsy and uh hmm. like hunting and fishing and they built a cabin in the woods and hmm. uh my mom hunts deer every year uh so in a, a rural life sort of way we were outdoorsy mm. um and in a, in a they, they they did it to me by providing me with uh like adventure literature that's always a, the, the the an amazing uh seed planter right yep. so books on polar exploration and basic mm. mountain you know Mm. historical mountaineering and stuff like that was my mm. initial exposures i never thought of it as a, as a career until i went away to college uh, i thought i was going to work in in forestry or agriculture or something i knew i wanted to work outdoors didn't know those are the things i knew of but in college i i was exposed to you know sort of the outdoor professions instruction mm. guiding uh management um sort of the wilderness professions i guess i'd say uh, to the point where it, in my uh, cohort, it's in the University of Maine, the late 90s, and that at that time, there's uh, four of us who peripherally like knew each other and all have gone on to, to be internationally certified mountain guides. It was sort of an exciting little time and place i didn't know any of those other folks super well but there's just this buzz of like you can be a professional in the wilderness and steep environments you know yeah. and and that was I, it, my it came onto my awareness and i i it skied a little bit as a kid and got into backpacking and mountain biking as a teenager and then got into I had friends who rock climb during college had basic exposure to all that for some reason you know there's lots of angles you can go i also had exposure to like river sports and uh mm -hmm. ecotourism type type opportunities i could have gone into wildlife tourism or or raft guiding or backpack guiding or bicycle instruction or whatever you know i had a lot of low level exposure to lots of different things but for some reason i i, I gravitated towards mount what we, what we call mountain guiding climbing and skiing mm. even though i wasn't much of a climber or a skier at the time. So I got through college with that idea, like I want to be a mountain guy. And, but I wasn't much of a climber or a skier. So I moved after school to Bishop, California, where you can climb and ski a lot at a high level. Uh, and fell in with a good community of people and improved my own personal climbing and skiing. Before I got my first basic guiding job there. And then, uh, started the the formal training and certification process for guiding is administered by the american mountain guide association 
uh, and that's a series of courses and exams in, in three major disciplines, rock climbing, mountaineering, and, and skiing, backcountry skiing, human-powered skiing. Uh, worked my way through that while also guiding more excellent mentorship. Um, for took six years or so to do that certification process. Finished that in 2013, which opened a bunch of doors, mainly just in my own uh, sense of possibilities. Started traveling more for work, guiding higher end objectives, and uh, and it went from there. And, and at this point, that that training and certification process is not required in any. In, in most circumstances in the United States, which is kind of weird. And many, many clients don't know that, just assume that there's a certification process. But if you throw a dart at the, at the at a list of guides in the United States, you might hit someone who has formal training and, and you might not. That blows my mind, yeah. I, I would have thought yeah, that yeah. would be impossible to do with, without accreditation certain places require it certain national parks and such require mm. something and it's mm. the requirements are vague actually mm. and then uh some employers are now requiring it uh and the many clients are coming up to speed on it but there's uh so this international internationally recognized level of certification i acquired it entirely in the United States, actually with a little bit of coursework in Canada. Uh, but in the United, there's 6,000 or so worldwide guides like that. Most of them are in Europe. I think 5,000 of them are in Europe or something. And here in the, oh, wow. in the U.S., there's 180 or so now, 170, something like that. Hmm. Uh, maybe not even that many, 150. I don't know. I was the 87th person to do it when I did it in the United States. Wow. So it's a relatively young profession in a in a way. Yeah. Well, the profession's old. The 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 profession's been around even here in the United States. Like there are guide services that have been operating continuously for eighty years. Uh, but the the internationally recognized, formalized third party accreditation is is much newer. Right. Okay. And you can use that accreditation wherever you end up going in the world that it, it, it allows you to well most places wherever they're mountains yeah many places yeah. and there are immigration matters and sure. different countries have different concerns sure and such like that sure. yeah. it interests me that it's that it requires you to be competent in uh mountaineering and rock climbing uh, you know that you couldn't or could you just just do it for skiing for backcountry skiing yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be internationally recognized at that point. You can do any one of them, any part of the process you can do. It's it's a it's a, it's a it's an Alps thing. You know, mountain mountain guiding in the started in the Alps mm. and the, the certification process started there. And to make a living year round there you have to ski and climb. And or at least historically. Uh so that the the certification standards have always included climbing and skiing with some exceptions regional exceptions i guess ecuador you can get to be an internationally certified guide without skiing used to be in great britain 
you could get an international certification without skiing. Hmm. Okay. But for the most part, you got to ski and climb. Here in the States, Canada for sure, you got to ski and climb. So I was thinking you were talking about uh, your your ski this morning and uh, you gave little air quotes when you said just for fun because there's always something going on that you're, that you're working on. Um, I've always found the the most one of the most frustrating or misleading i think clichés that gets thrown around is uh do what you love and you'll you'll never work a day in your life um and i'm like yeah well or the thing that you love will just turn into your job and there's a chance that with that you'll end up loving it a little bit less could be um i wonder if uh, you find that at all? Do you, do you, does it feel like work to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's, there's a, there's a financial pressure to do so. Mm. Like if I don't go get up at five thirty and do my morning homework and drive to meet the clients, like I'm not going to get paid and that's not going to happen. So I, there, that pressure alone, it, it changes the experience uh, there's a very, very, the, the biggest difference between today and a day of guiding is the social level of it. Uh, for better or for worse, it, there's pros and cons. Um, cause in guiding the, the roles, the social roles are perfectly clear. Uh, and, and, and corollary to that is that the, the responsibilities are, are perfectly clear. You know, the hierarchy is clear. I'm in charge. Uh, but that means, so that means that like we know who's going to make the decisions. It also means that I have to make those decisions. Hmm. Uh, and if I forget my boots, like I ruined someone else's day. Well, it's me and my buddy today. Like we're going to make those decisions together, which has its pros and cons also, uh, but if I forget my boots or if I'm not feeling it and I want to turn around and go back down, like I'm not going to ruin someone else's vacation. Mm. And uh, you're also not with your buddy. It's not just about who's making the decisions, but I come back to the idea of, of being responsible for other people's safety. It's, that's got to come with a pretty large amount of, of pressure. Yeah. It's never bugged me though. Hmm. I, I don't know. Definitely, like that 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 has driven colleagues right out of the business. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I have pretty high tolerance for that. I, I I don't mind. I like it. I have a great deal of confidence in my own abilities. Yeah. Uh, I think I I think I have sure. a real level of confidence in my abilities, a defensible hmm. level of confidence in my abilities. When when you say your abilities in in that situation, do you mean um, your abilities to to assess conditions and, and make decisions? Do you mean your your ability, or I assume rather than your uh, skiing ability or your climbing ability? No, they're all the same thing in a lot of, a lot of situations. But yeah, the, mainly the, the decision-making abilities and the everything for which I am responsible, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident I'm capable of, you know? Hmm, hmm. And, and, that's a that's a perhaps 
a potentially fraught state of mind. And, and I've had moments and periods of time with lower confidence in, in my capabilities. But the, uh, so that's why I say it's real, a real confidence versus false confidence or what have you. Mm. And so there's the, the issue of the, the social dynamic, which I find really interesting. Um, when you're undertaking, you know, obviously when it's, uh, it might be a different type of social dynamic. That's a pressure when it's six, six kids on one boulder and what have you. But when it's a serious expedition of potentially life-threatening proportions and um, uh, you're working as a team, I assume, in a lot of instances, it's not you taking people. You might be the lead or the, or the guide, but it, but everybody's safety relies on on the competence of of everybody in the group in many in many circumstances. I would imagine. Um, speak a little bit more about about how you assess those. I mean, do you say no to people ever? For instance, I saw I saw you had a on your twenty twenty one year report. Uh, you had a note about completing a tour with a seventy year old client. Um. And it just crossed my mind, you know, how do you account for, uh, how do you assess somebody like that's fitness and general level of health? How do you account for people's state of mind, uh, you know, mental fortitude? Do you only undertake big, uh, potentially high risk trips with, with people that you know quite well? Uh, or, or are you? Do you go through a process of getting to know people before you undertake those sorts of endeavors with them? How does it work? Multi-pronged, all of the above. Uh, you're, you're you're pretty well tuned in. It seems like the uh, first of all, the progression, progression of what we do together. That any particular partnership, you know, starts mm-hmm. out less committing and, and and goes from there. You know. Uh, that's that's sort of baked in. So we're not going to go and do the raddest stuff the very first time we meet. Uh, might do the raddest thing they've ever done, but it's not going to be <laughs> the raddest stuff I've ever done. You know? Uh, sure. Yeah. So that's that's just built in. Margins for, mm. for, for error and margins for differing abilities. And, and hmm. tempered commitment or, or uh, measured commitment. Uh, and then even prior to, but prior to that, you know, initially meeting someone, uh, the, the ref- many of the clients I work with have also worked with colleagues and, and okay. we, we talk, the colleagues, yeah. I talk with my colleagues about the person and the person's abilities. Uh, I speak, I communicate with clients beforehand. Uh, anytime I can, anytime the business situation allows for it, I, I, I personally speak directly with the person I'm going to go in the field with. That's not always the case with the guides and guide services. And guide services sometimes don't build that in. But uh, 
I I really, really, really like to interact directly with the person on some level prior. And phone is nice, in person's even better, but text and emails actually work with the right questions uh, and then the right interpretation of what they're saying. I can get a pretty good hand on what people are capable of, you know? Hmm. Uh, What's your experience and background with climbing, if any? You know, what are your goals Hmm. for this day and beyond in terms of climbing? Hmm. Uh, Hmm. And and open-ended questions like that, and then some some interpretation and follow-up and discourse from that plugged into you know, a decades old algorithm that, that can calibrate and, and adjust and, and act and come up with a pretty good vision of what people are capable of. It's an interesting idea to, to be, to be the person who is offering a service, but then to be vetting the people to whom you are offering the service, which in, you would think almost all circumstances would be the other way around. You know, you most cases, if you if you if you're in the market for a service, you go on Google and read a, somebody's reviews or whatever it might be. Uh, you speak, maybe you get a personal reference from a friend. Oh, go and use this company. Uh, they were super great for me. Um, but it's an interesting dynamic that that there's it's probably works both ways in your situation of oh don't don't guide that guy. That guy was a nightmare. Yeah, the closest analog is is medical professions, right? Hmm. A doctor isn't going to just show up and cut somebody open. They're going to learn their health history and ask them some hmm. questions and take some take some vital signs first, you know. Yeah. Not that I'm a, not that I'm a doctor, but no, sure. But also on the flip side is if if uh, you know the doctor's not risking his life if the if the patient is is beyond help or what have you, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's no situation in which, in which the, the doctor's patient is going to potentially threaten his, his existence by making, being stubborn or. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so much better than a doctor then, in that way. I'm cooler. Than, I'm, I'm more badass than a doctor because. That's definitely more badass. So I think we can, we can true. agree on more badass. <laughs> no, I, I just take people on vacation. So speaking of badass, I saw I enjoyed um, the picture that you posted a while ago of you skiing with what would normally be a, a little buggy attached to the back of a bicycle, which I assume your oh, yeah. your very your very fresh your very fresh child is is in there. Yeah, um, yeah. How, how's that? How's how is it being being a, a dad and new dad and balancing um, your passions and your your work with with having a kid it's freaking awesome yeah yeah it's different life is different uh she's eight weeks old tomorrow next day day after tomorrow uh yeah it's it's pretty darn cool it's uh in terms of like mountain stuff like mountain stuff seems pretty trivial anymore uh in some ways I'm still very, very motivated to go to the mountains and still feel very good going to the mountains and professionally, you know, with another, another mouth to feed, I got to go to the mountains. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. 
but also like there's just life is life is way bigger now with a with a baby in the mix. I I I couldn't do what I do in the mountains without decades of of building the system. You know, uh, would I would not want to be a new mountain professional and also add a baby in. Uh, and my wife and I have worked together for, for a while to, to build this system together. We have a great system, obviously. And, man, new moms are, work like crazy. In terms of, are you talking about in terms of your time and in terms of just organizationally a system? Yeah, time, organizationally, yeah. financially. Uh, yeah. It's a huge one. Um, mm. And, you know, we've built a life here in the mountains where I can, you know, change a baby's diaper and then drive and go skiing and come back with my clothes still damp and change the next diaper, you know? Uh, mm. So it fits into life. Uh, the, the mountains fit into, into the, into the family life because of where we are and that my, my skis live right next to the door and my, uh, you know, little things like that. Hmm. Well, speaking as uh, somebody who grew up just about as far from snowy mountains as you can imagine in the very south of the African continent, I can say with some confidence that that's a lucky child uh, to be born into born into those circumstances. Well, from my perspective, I guess I'm also, I also just really love the mountains. Yeah. Um, she's going to hate some parts of this life just because she's supposed to hate everything that, that, that her parents do, right? You know, <laughs> we're, we're, I think we're real about that. But yeah, she'll, she'll, sure. she'll, she'll go on to live in LA. And, and when she's finally, when she's, when she's 25, she can finally brag about going skiing when she's three weeks old. She might appreciate it then. And that, that, that's all I need. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> all right. Awesome, Chad. Well, speaking of, I know that uh, you might have uh, diaper change duty to get back to there. So I won't, I won't take up uh, any more of your time. But it's I really not appreciate just diaper you... changing, but I realize, I realize that that's all I described. <laughs> <laughs> having a baby. <laughs> we also just sit and look at each other and so yeah. to talk to each other Fair. she's she's pretty cool cool yeah take it in <laughs> just sit and sit and absorb great well you go do that and enjoy and thanks very much for your time i appreciate it yeah excellent yeah thank you paul <laughs>